1: While, a movie comes along that speaks straight from the heart and touches all our lives. Mommy! ABC hails when a man loves a woman as an unforgettable celebration of the human spirit.
0: I messed up, baby, but I'm fighting my way back.
1: Rolling Stone calls it a gripping love story. My wife is the most amazing woman. She's got 600 different kinds of smiles.
0: Andy Garcia and Meg Ryan deliver Oscar-caliber performances. And welcome to the This Head Oscar Buzz Podcast, the only podcast asking the more empathic question: how is Skimble? Every week on This at Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my younger sister decapitating her dolls and throwing their heads in the toilet as some, like, beauty exercise. It's
1: stripping the makeup, whatever. Um, it's Joe Reed. I'm a, I'm a radical when it comes to beauty standards and the beauty myth, so Yes. I'm also apparently I, May Whitman at her most adorable. Which thank you for that. I was
0: gonna say between the two of us, you are definitely the May Whitman, and I am the Tina Majorino.
1: That makes sense, and I appreciate that. I feel like I'm. Ha- I'm more I'm likely happy to hang
0: that. out with a seal.
1: Um, <laughs> right. I'm more. I'm more likely to be the problem daughter of Lauren Graham on a uh, on a long running dramedy. So. Mm-hmm. I'm more likely to have the sobbing scene. Right, right. Whereas, like, I'm more likely to be caught up in uh, an alien invasion of the United States, where my dad has to, like, go pilot a fighter jet, I think is my personality. I feel like I get that from my personality, right? Yeah.
0: The only, uh, maybe not the only, but, like, the upside for me is I'm more likely to uh, co-star with Whoopi Goldberg.
1: I was gonna say! Whoopi Goldberg, who changes uh, traffic lights by, uh uh blowing on whistling it. at them yes yes exactly yeah. yes which was the same year i saw the mdb trivia says that this was the film debut for both tina majorino and uh Mae whitman but it was the same year as karina karina so tr- truly tina majorino had a blockbuster year this year and then the next year uh it all came crashing down with water worlds which clearly was uh a career catastrophe for Tina Majorino specifically. It that didn't really... so
0: much all come crashing down as it all came washing down. <laughs> right. Like waterfall. Right. It washed Tina Majorino washed her away. still has like an extensive television career though.
1: Oh yeah. She was on, uh, I guess this was now several years ago, but she was on Grey's Anatomy for a few years and then got electrocuted to death in a, uh, in That's a one storm. Grey's Anatomy. Yes, exactly. Yes. It was in a season finale too, where, uh, they came back. The season finale cliffhanger was like, "Does is the chief dead?" Because uh, he went to go check on uh, her, and he found her in the in the water, and and then he got electrocuted. And so then the cliffhanger sort of like takes it all away from her. And then in the season premiere, it's like, "Yeah, well, she died, but like the chief's okay, so everything is fine." And it was just like, "Oh, that's a bummer, bummer for her." Grey's Anatomy is so unwell. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Anyway, we're not. Uh, weirdly, this movie isn't about. Tina Majorino and Mae Whitman's characters, even though I think they both give stellar child performances. Like, legitimately, they're both so good in this.
0: Yeah, they feel like actual children. Mae Whitman is maybe a little too precocious for a child that's supposed to be four years
1: old, but but it doesn't... There's that scene towards the end where and we're just going to jump around cuz whatever. Where Andy Garcia has to first go tell Tina Majorino that he's moving to Denver and then he's got to uh, tell May Whitman and May Whitman is younger so he there's less of a, you know, heart to heart there, but she's making her way across this like playground uh, uh, wooden plank suspended bridge thing that you have when playgrounds used to put children's lives in danger. Um and she's just like what is she saying? She's just like She's just sort of like willing herself forward, sort of like whispering to herself, doing that thing that like kids do sometimes where they just sort of like whisper just like just like one more step, like kind of a thing. And it's just
0: so she's the like cute. offhandedly weird four year old child yes, in this movie. I like love you half her. expect her to be like chain smoking and carrying a cat or something. She's gonna like,
1: grow up to be Mae Whitman. Like like yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. She she's going to grow up to be the duff and, and truly, uh, who doesn't want that in their future? Indeed. Anyway,
0: I think what you were getting at, though, is for the child performance level of it, he next goes to Tina Majorino, which is like the sob inducing scene or it really wants to be. And Dina Majorino is giving the more natural performance and Andy Garcia is giving the child performance where it's like, this is what it sounds like when you're crying. I am not actually (laughs) crying, but I'm giving you cry voice to make you think that I'm crying.
1: I think Andy, I think generally all of the principles are really good in this movie. I think Andy Garcia gives a good performance, but he does do that thing in emotional scenes where, um it sounds like he's trying to swallow uh, a spoonful of food as he's talking, like that kind of thing, where it's just sort of yes. just like his voice is just sort of very, uh, gets very kind of husky in that way, where it's just like, I'm not, I'm not going to cry, like that kind of a thing.
0: And his eyes are bone dry.
1: Yes. Uh, but yeah, I think Tina Majorino like really comes through in um, the, the scenes where she's sort of called upon to be emotional. She got some kind of nomination for something, um, in uh, child star, child Awards star or award something. or something. Yeah. Um, she's yeah. She no Chicago Film Critics Association most promising actress for this and Andre and Karina Karina. So Andre was also this year. What a great what year for Tina Andre? Majorino <laughs> That is what that movie is about. It is the origin story of Andre Gonzalo and uh, and his the the early days of his romance with Tim Gunn. So. The moss dress, It's about the mastruss. <laughs> We are really going uh, Tina everywhere. Majorino gives a searing
0: performance as Heidi Klum. Or uh, not as Heidi Klum, she's um
1: she's car janks. She, yes. Actually, I can see it. Yeah. I yeah. can see yeah. That's uh she really had to stretch with accent work and stuff. That's a lot for a young mm-hmm. kid. Yeah. It feels like we're trying to avoid talking about when a man loves a woman and I don't think this is that bad of a movie that we would need to avoid talking about it. I was surprised, like, the way the movie, like, kicks
0: off, it's like, oh, this is not going to be very good. This is going to be very maudlin 90s. And I think what the movie is eventually actually about, I think, surprised me in a way that I gave it a little bit more credit than I was expecting to. Because it's about a marriage where... The wife is an alcoholic, um, and goes through the rehab and um, process, and like, you, normally you would see, um, like the climax of a movie would be either her going to rehab finally or returning home from rehab. This movie really like takes you through the whole process, yeah, where. A good chunk maybe half of the movie a third of the back end of the movie is after she comes home oh yeah she goes to, to rehab at of... the halfway part the point of exactly movie. Yeah. um and like surprisingly the movie becomes less about addiction and more about um i mean like i don't want to say toxic masculinity but like it's not Andy not Garcia's about see his character. Yeah. yeah, it's not not about toxic masculinity, but um, about how th- their relationship and his psychology has been about yeah putting himself in the place where he's the fixer. You know, he can always just like yes. solve a problem, and that's what keeps their relationship together. The potential uh, and then when they have to actually be real. Yeah. Um, as she puts it, like it kind of... That's the thing that falls apart. Not the addiction, right. but, like, what their balance is.
1: Right. The potential problem of this movie is that it's going to be too much Andy Garcia's story. Like, it's like it's called When a Man Loves a Woman because there's a song called When a Man Loves a Woman, and we'll get into that, trust. Um, but, like... Um, When I say we'll get into that, I mean, I'll mention that Michael Bolton had a hit in 1991 with When a Man Loves a Woman, a cover of When a Man Loves a Woman. And like, that's why I think this title was very well focused group tested or whatever. But anyway, um, it's called When a Man Loves a Woman and it does lead with the man. It does when she goes to rehab, the movie sort of like leaves her there and focuses on him with the daughters, mostly. She has a couple really good scenes with Latanya Richardson-Jackson, who Mm -hmm. I could watch her and Lauren Tom, who plays Amy, their sort of uh, babysitter, essentially, babysitter plus. Um, I could watch entire movies about the both of them. I think both of those characters are really interesting and like really likable, and I like both of those performers so much um do you know latonya richardson jackson and samuel l jackson have been married for 50 years or have been together together for 50 years at least maybe not married that whole time but like they met in 1970 in college like the joke of course is always that like samuel jackson is so much older than you think he is but like even still they've been together for 50 years that is like phenomenal that's so good for them honest to god like i want to throw them a party just for that um (laughs) but anyway backtracking backtracking Oh, so like it's it's the danger of this movie is that it is more about Andy Garcia's character than it is about hers. But the saving grace of it a little bit is that it doesn't let him off the hook the way that you think it might. Even if the ending does sort of have him play hero ball a little bit where he shows up and he gives an amazing speech and they get back together. Her final monologue, I think, does something
0: to um, yes pacify it that pissed me off.
1: Oh, interesting. But you're, but you're right that it spends most of the movie... Um, that her final monologue is her sort of being like, I pushed my husband away and I shouldn't have done that, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But I, I think the movie does, as you were saying, like, focus at times on his whole thing where, like, he's trying to solve her as a problem. And she mm-hmm. directly like, confronts that. And I do think, like, you know, for a movie that is Written by two men, Ronald Bass and uh, Al Franken, and directed by a man, and uh, again, sort of is a little bit more about him than it is her in the in the final wash of it. Um, it does a good job of at least interrogating his sort of role as a man, mm-hmm. but and I mean, it comes to
0: a surprise that the movie ends up being about that, and that you realize that that was the problem in the relationship. Um, or a major problem in the relationship, yeah. um, it comes to, to a surprise to us in the audience, just like you maybe would realize those things about your own relationship in a way that I found, you know, more interesting than I was expecting this movie to be.
1: Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned, because you sort of uh, you you uh, made a passing mention of how kind of 90s this feels in its conception, or sort of uh, there were times... Whenever I sort of look at a movie of this type, I sort of think, like, oh, like, there's there's a TV movie version of this that, like, exists. And it feels very 90s in a lot of ways, part part of which is the two stars, and we'll definitely delve into the both of them. Um, But there were times when this reminded me of Lorenzo Zoyle in a good way. Like, I really (laughs) love Lorenzo Zoyle, but Lorenzo Zoyle was another movie that was sort of just like, here is the uh issue that we're going to be unpacking and the issue in lorenzo's oil was here is this horrible disease that nobody knows about and then we are going to follow these people as they sort of fight their way through it and in this uh the you know als is alcoholism and i was just sort of thinking i'm reading through some of the reviews i read the roger Ebert review and i sort of uh, uh paced my way through a couple other uh critical assessments of this and there was a lot of Ebert, especially sort of makes mention of the fact that this movie does what other movies about alcoholism hadn't been doing, which is doesn't treat her going to rehab as the end point that it that mm-hmm. it goes on after this, that it talks about how hard it is in the aftermath and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting that in 1994, that was novel, because I think the way we've depicted alcoholism in the years since we've really evolved and like now this sort of holistic the sort of roller coaster ride uh, uh parabola arc of an mm-hmm. alcoholism story is to me what is the standard of just like I I get kind of pre weary when these stories come about in television shows or less and less in movies because we make less and less fewer and fewer movies like this now but um The sort of thing where it's just like the addiction and then the recovery and then the or the addiction and then the hit bottom and then the recovery and then the relapse from the recovery or like then the emotional sort of crash from that. And it's like, I am now really used to that, whereas back in 1994, it was more admirable than a movie was going beyond just uh, the bottoming out and then going to rehab kind of a thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm hmm. So, yeah, there's the 90s ness of this movie uh, is apparent in a lot of ways that I think will be, you know, really interesting to talk about. But this is also a movie that I don't know about what year. Maybe this is one of those things where, like, our age difference shows up. I remember this being, like, a very well advertised, prominent movie. There were so many parts of this movie that I'm like, oh, I remember that clearly from the TV commercials and the trailers. Like, this was. Kind of everywhere mm-hmm. that year, and I think it was the Meg Ryan-ness of it was, you know, such a big part of that. She was a huge, right. She the was year a huge star at this was in point.
0: Seattle. Yes. Um, I I mean, like I don't remember like marketing stuff for this movie, but I definitely remember like my mother renting this movie on a VHS, and I remember the scene where she passes out and falls through the showers. And is yes. like, laying
1: naked in glass, passed out. And I remember it absolutely uh, terrifying me. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the scene where she yells out the window, people are trying to have sex up here, was definitely in the trailer. The part where she says... Um, Uh, like, Mommy Messed Up But I'm Fighting My Way Back, that was definitely in the trailer. The part where Andy Garcia says, my wife has a hundred different kinds of smiles, that's definitely, like, all of that stuff felt like, I felt like this was, you know, heavily advertised. I remember this movie being, like, not like a huge deal, but I think part of my sort of puzzlement that Meg Ryan didn't end up getting an Oscar nomination for this was because it wasn't this, like, overlooked little movie. Like, a lot of people heard about this movie, a lot of people saw this movie. Mm-hmm. And almost everybody who did really thought she was very good in it. And we'll definitely talk about the 1994 Best Actress race because it is There's a so much going on. real juicy. I definitely
0: have some theories on why I think she could have been overlooked
1: for this. Well, that is what we are here for. Just on a movie level. Yeah, yeah. Um well, that is definitely uh, our thing, so we will uh get into that once we get on the other it's side. What we're of... here to do. Yes, exactly.
0: Anyway, let's get into the 60-second plot description. Uh, once again, guys, we're here to talk about When a Man Loves a Woman, directed by Louis Mandoki, written by Ron Bass and Cringe Al Franken. Yeah. Um, <laughs> starring Meg Ryan, Andy Garcia, Ellen Burst and Tina Majorino, Mae Whitman, Latanya Richardson-Jackson, Lauren Tom, and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Talk yeah. about Break My Fucking Heart the second he showed up on screen.
1: Yeah, he's got two scenes in this movie, and they're both really good. This is a this is a movie that is well cast in its uh, sort of two scene performances between him yeah. and, and Latanya for sure.
0: Well, just for a movie for addiction, like to see him yeah. show up as a fellow struggling addict was just like a real yeah um, that's a very good point gut punch. That's a very good point. Um, anyway, when a man loves a woman opened limited uh, late April 1994, and then opened wide mid May of 1994. Joe. Yes. Are you ready to give a 60-second
1: plot description? Sure, I am. All right. If you are ready, I will start the timer now all right meg ryan is alice and andy garcia is michael and they are very hot and married it is a good marriage with two little daughters played by tina majorino from meg ryan's first marriage and may whitman and they both have adorable little faces alice is a pretty hardcore alcoholic though and it becomes harder and harder to hide it from her family like she hides half full bottles of vodka all over her house and one day she gets wasted and slaps tina majorino and then passes out in the shower and sweet little tina thinks she died and it is uh It's very harrowing. She didn't die. She did hit rock bottom, though, so she hands off to rehab, and we don't really see her for a bit while we linger on Michael struggling to care for his daughters, even though he has the help of flawless Amy, who should get a whole movie to herself. Anyway, after Alice gets out of rehab, she and Michael really struggle to get on the same page, and there's a ton of accumulated guilt and resentment and frustration going on in both ways between them, and there's a huge argument between them, and he flips over a coffee table, a very heavy coffee table, actually, and it finally becomes too much, and they separate, and Alice stays miraculously sober, but it really does seem like she and Michael are going to divorce until he shows up at her Amy, a me- AA meeting to see her get her six months chip, and it seems like he finally gets it. And there's a big romantic speech, and we roll credits. Optimistic that they will get back together. And in the that's end. time. Woo. Okay, first of all, the flipped over
0: table. Pretty sure that's in Andy Garcia's contract that he has to flip over <laughs> tables in movies. Um, second of all, yep. you say that it seems miraculous that she stays sober. That final speech, she says she's been sober for 184 days. The movie really makes you think that more time is passing. Um, And I actually appreciated that she got to have this speech, which, like, you know, for an addict, I'm sure, like, it it is a huge achievement. But for, like, when you're watching the movie, you think that months and months are going by. And it's really been, like, half a year for her, which feels like this huge achievement. Yeah. Um, And also, like, this really rapid amount of time for their marriage to kind of fall apart and for him to try to get his shit together. (laughs) Yeah. As, like emotional dimwit
1: yeah um i think all of that is very true i'm surprised also that that second half of the movie we don't ever see ellen burston show up again as her mother because like clearly like this character has so many problems with her mother and uh yeah, she talks it about it a little that... bit as like the roots of her addiction um lie a little bit in her her parents relationships to each other and her father's relationship to alcohol and that whole kind of thing. And it really feels like we're building up to kind of a reckoning scene between them, and we don't ever Mm -hmm. get that at all, which is interesting.
0: Well, and, like, they talk to the kids, too, about how it makes it seem like the kids really don't want to be around their
1: grandmother for some reason. Right. Tina Majorino at one point is just like, she says bad things about you, and I don't like that. And you do, yeah, you feel like... And also, it's like, well, that's why you would cast Ellen Burstyn. And I know that, like, at this point in Ellen Burstyn's career, this was before... She started sort of back on the upswing of being in everything. Um, This was still a good several years before Requiem for a Dream, but like she's still an Oscar winning actress, like at Mm -hmm. this point, like even if it was sort of like, oh, remember Ellen Burson at this point? Like you cast her for a scene and a half and it's odd that she's not in it more
0: yeah she shows i don't think she has a single scene indoors she is only ever on their doorstep when she arrives and when she leaves she is basically their grubhub delivery
1: that is a very funny scene is when they come back from that vacation uh after the grandparents have taken care of the girls for that whole weekend and And one of the daughters just takes
0: her grandmother's suitcase. suitcase and puts it right out on the fucking curb yeah it's very funny
1: um I really just love the daughters in this. I think they're really, really uh wonderful. But um I think Meg Ryan's really fantastic in this movie.
0: She's great. She's great. Just like <laughs> this is our third Meg Ryan. Each time we're like, Meg Ryan is so good and got no credit for this movie, though I mean we'll we'll talk about the credit she did get for this movie. But, but
1: and it's like and she has these sort of big emotional high points as you would imagine taking a role as an alcoholic she you know these scenes of her crying and and arguing with andy and and feeling this you know tremendous guilt and shame and all of the stuff but like for me the stuff that i found even more impressive than that she's just it's i mean it's you know you say this about actors or actresses who are like movie stars and she's such a movie star you could watch her face all day there are scenes in this movie where she's you can tell that her character is feeling irritated or troubled or angry or whatever. And yet she sort of leads with a smile or like a laugh to sort of like put that emotion at bay or to mask that emotion. But you see it all sort of on her face. You just can't turn away from her. And it's, it's just like, it's just the mark of a true movie star, but just like giving this really, really complicated performance that I just think is really really fantastic.
0: And, mm-hmm. and I agree. I think there's a reticence to um specifically from her performance. I mean, I feel like the movie is more like middle of the road, middling and she's elevating it, but in the performance there seems to be a real like concentrated effort to not, you know, like rub it into the like grimness of this and kind of play it a little bit more um loose, like she's figuring out where she is mentally once she returns back, whereas, like, it could have been just Um Right.
1: I think that's what I was expecting. Even though yeah. I'm pretty sure I had seen this movie before, but it had been so long that I had really kind of forgotten. But I was expecting more miserableism than we got.
0: I, I feel like the movie kind of, and some of it might be her, like, performance choices, which are smarter But it does take, it diverts attention away from her because even in those fight scenes, like Andy Garcia is the one that's yelling, Mm -hmm. whereas she is a little bit more level headed. Yeah. Whereas, like, again, a lesser movie could have had them just screaming at each other. Right.
1: Yeah. It's, and obviously, this is her playing off of her Sleepless in Seattle rom com persona, which had, like, this. The year before, Sleepless in Seattle, I feel like when that is when that was at its peak, even though she did continue to make uh, romantic comedies for a while after. But I kind of jotted down the sort of the path of her career from When Harry Met Sally to I went up until Proof of Life because I feel like Proof of Life and sort of everything that surrounded that movie kind of marked uh, an end of a certain phase of her career, right? The end of the... Mm-hmm. Uh, America's sweetheart sort of version. She was of treated Meg Ryan. very badly. She was treated very badly in the press. I would agree. So okay, when Harry met Sally in 1989 follows it up with Joe versus the volcano in 1990, which I've watched semi-recently. It's such a weirder movie than you would remember it being. And she plays multiple characters. She plays, I think, three different characters in that movie. And they're all, like, just, like, a notch or two off of the Meg Ryan persona that they would we would come to know. And it's really kind of fascinating. And it's not all good, but um, it's a much more interesting movie than you would think of just, like, oh, it's the other Tom Hanks Meg Ryan movie, right? Um, the Doors in 1991, which everybody kind of forgets that she was in that, she was... Uh, the love interest for uh, Val Kilmer's Jim Morrison character in that. This is the other thing I sort of figured out as I was going through this Meg Ryan filmography is I think sometimes when we talk about movies like When a Man Loves a Woman and In the Cut and Courage Under Fire, which are the ones that we've talked about on this podcast, that we talk about her just sort of like putting the brakes on the rom-com persona and Veering off into, uh, I'm going to be a dramatic actress right now. But, like, she had all these, like, dramatic roles kind of peppered in throughout these performances. Mm -hmm. It's just that, like, they didn't get any notice. Like, The Doors got noticed, but nobody really talked about Meg Ryan in The Doors, right? She goes, she, she makes Prelude to a Kiss in 1992, which is another, like, weird romance you know what i mean it's like it's romance but mm-hmm. it's like off kilter and strange obviously sleepless in seattle is 1993 but what nobody really ever thinks about is she also made that movie flesh and bone in 1993 which is again like dark drama like her going the other way and everybody in america was just like yeah we're not going to think about that we're just going to think about sleepless in seattle um <laughs> 1994 is A Man Loves a Woman, and also uh, IQ, that movie where it was like historical fiction. Walter Matthau Einstein.
0: as uh, Einstein or something. Right.
1: But the whole movie is a romance with her and Tim Robbins. Um, French Kiss in 1995, her and Kevin Klein. She's in that costume drama Restoration, which again gets like Oscar nominations for set design and whatnot, but like nobody remembers that as like a Meg Ryan uh, counter programming thing. Then Courage Under Fire in 1996, we've talked about it. Addicted to Love in 97, which is like her big forgotten romantic comedy. It's her and Matthew Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. Like, I would imagine the very tail end of when Matthew Broderick would be cast in a role like that. Like, two years later is Election, and that's much more the modern flavor of Matthew Broderick, where we're going to use his boyishness to... uh, increasingly complicated effect right whenever we do cast uh, matthew broderick and something i'm thinking also of like you can count on me that kind of a thing mm-hmm. um city of angels and you've got mail in 1998 which is a really interesting double bill which is like uh very back to basics nora efron tom hanks meg ryan and then weird romantic drama uh, vim vendors remake nicholas cage Meg Ryan and the, both of them are pitched directly down the center of the American movie-going public at the time, and one of them is remembered very fondly as one of her like great romantic comedies, and then one of them is remembered for uh, the Goo Goo Dolls and uh, Alanis Morissette having great songs on the soundtrack, so and
0: infuriating audiences at the time because she dies, yes, on a bike ride. She gets yeah. hit by a truck. He, she's he a becomes a human and then she immediately dies after they have sex.
1: Right. God, what a strange movie that is. It pissed people off. It did. It made also, me how,
0: how dare you just breeze past Anastasia?
1: I did. I had. Okay. Here's why I did that. I was because running. She doesn't sing in the movie. I was running out of that. lines on this piece of notebook paper that I wrote this all down on. So I was like, well, Anastasia is a voice role. Yes, she is the voice of Anastasia in Anastasia. She does not sing. Um, and then 2000, it's Proof of Life, as we mentioned, and also Hanging Up, which is Diane Keaton directs from a Nora and Delia Efron script, if I am not mistaken, mm-hmm. which we should Incredibly really Incredibly critically
0: reviled.
1: Yes, but definitely had Oscar buzz going in because it was another Nora Efron thing, the Diane Keaton mm-hmm. factor. Um, is that also 1999 into 2000 is that also Walter Matthau he's their father in that and people thought that might be like a late career nomination for him think so let me look this up really fast I think that's correct yes it is Walter Matthau remember there was that run of movies where uh, respected actors would play like the old dying father In movies, I'm thinking also of like The Savages, and people were like, "Well, that's definitely an Oscar nomination because like we love sort of old dying people in this thing, and then they just like never materialized for one reason or another." Right, right. Uh, right. Poor Philip Bosco. Unless it's the judge, (laughs) right? Unless it's the judge. Which at that point we thought we were kind of past that, and it's just like, oh, no, bitch, we are, we are back in the soup with that. But I don't know. What do you make of that kind of stretch of Meg Ryan's career? I think it's interesting that she did keep trying to, like, do dramas, and for one reason or another, either the American public or the Oscars or both were just like, no, we'd prefer not. I think it's kind of
0: twofold. One is that I think her comedic persona... I don't know if this is just, like, we collectively decided to see it more narrowly than like what her comedic abilities are on screen. But it got very pacified into this not quite girl next door, but like America's sweetheart type of thing. Whereas like actually her comedic performances that we all love are a lot more complex than that. Right. Um even like when Harry met Sally, um, You've Got Male, like uh, there's a lot more going on when you rewatch those movies than it's just like, oh, she's just this sweet actress who can sometimes be funny. Right. Um, And, uh, I mean, I think the other thing is uh, that I'm always surprised about Meg Ryan is it's actually a lot less movies um, yeah. then you maybe remember and like that I guess kind of speaks to her impact in the movies that like have stayed with us that there's so few of them but like she's still such like a, a, a talking point as an actress um, but I think it kind of like that imbalance of what her work actually is and how we perceive it um, is kind of exacerbated by the fact that there's so few movies so that when she goes and does in the cut which she's incredible in and yeah. it's a great movie is
1: even more jarring for audiences yeah i think that's right and i think it's also that the movies that we love her best in i think because they i think you're right to say that there's a lot more specificity going on in those when harry met sally sleepless in seattle you've got mail but i think because they coalesced around the same creative talent Nora Ephron mm-hmm. and tom hanks uh and that I think that really calcified the American public's image of her. And really, they really wanted to like hold to it. And it's in many ways kind of an older Hollywood thing of just sort of like, we're just going to like, we make good movies together. So we're going to keep making good movies together. And television by this point had sort of like, Taken over that of just like if you liked seeing the same people doing the you know similar genres and working together all the time, that's sort of what television we have television for now. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, I think it just made it like more and more difficult for her for uh the public to allow her to break out of that box. And yet, seeing that again, when a man loves a woman was pretty popular and pretty well received, and mm-hmm. yet. I don't know. You seem to have a theory as to why there was a glass ceiling on how far she could go this award season for this performance.
0: I mean, I think it's more the movie's problem. Like all of the people that she would have been nominated against, all the eventual nominees, um, with the exception of Tom and Viv, because I haven't seen it.
1: Nor have um, I. How we should watch it. See that. I don't know. Let's figure it out and watch it together or something somehow. Yeah, I think
0: that's just one of those like '90s nominees that are hard to get your hands on. Yeah. Um. But, like, it's kind of a weirdly split year. Oscar goes its own way. The Globes kind of go their own way. Um, And SAG does as well. We should also mention, she's SAG-nominated for this performance in Lead Actress. It's the first year that SAG does these awards. Yes. So, like, I think they're, like, this is... We also talk about this as being a not-very-good Best Actress year. Those don't exist. It's just, it's kind of spread all about, and I think Susan Sarandon gets a lot of crap for that nomination for The Client. We've talked about this a lot, yes. when actually she was probably just, she just wasn't nominated for The Globe, <laughs> really. Right. Um. Like, she won BAFTA for that movie. Well, and I think um, a
1: lot of the sort of eyebrow-raising of that Oscar nomination is genre snobbery, when, like, mm-hmm. she's so much better than the eventual Oscar winner that year. <laughs> like...
0: I mean, I think I've said this on mic, I recently caught up to Blue Sky, and I think it's one of the worst um, Oscar-winning performances I've ever seen. But the Jessica Lange thing, like, A, it's carryover, like, this movie was shelved because it was Orion, and Orion went under, um, and it finally got released, so, like, there's goodwill towards that. Because um, Oscar was especially friendly to Orion in the early 90s. But it's also this carryover goodwill towards Jessica Lange, who won an Oscar for Tootsie, but like they wanted to give it to her for Frances. But she's nominated against Meryl Streep for Sophie's Choice, right. which is like a performance that's never going to lose. The brick wall even... of, uh, of Oscar
1: nominations where it's just like, honey, exactly. it's not you're, you're not getting through that
0: you still have actors today saying Jessica Lange and Francis is the greatest performance ever in movies. Right. Um, so like that probably contributed to Jessica Lange was never going to lose. Right. Um, but I don't know, as far as not being able to get an Oscar nomination for it, I think it's nothing to do with the performance and more about the movie. I mm-hmm. think it becomes more of Andy Garcia's movie. Um, and I think like it's the same thing that we talk about with her other performances that are good it's she has a I don't want to say like minor key but she has a very subtle approach and a very nuanced approach to things that I think in movies people expect like uh, I guess something louder you know Um, do you think a worse performance in this movie is
1: more successful with awards huh do you think a worse performance in this movie is more successful with awards i do think sometimes yeah absolutely yeah where she's a lot louder and a lot more making more
0: obvious choices yeah
1: yeah 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 Yeah. i think that's definitely possible so now that you've opened the door for 1994 best actress and i do want to we should have that discussion because we've talked about it a little bit before when uh we talked about juliette lewis in uh, natural born killers which was this year uh the oscar winner as you mentioned is jessica lang also nominated that year are susan sarandon and the client miranda richardson and tom and viv which neither of us have seen jodie foster in nell which we've talked about before is if she hadn't already been a two-time oscar winner we think there's a good chance she wins for Nell, even though Nell is also... She won the SAG. ...a weird performance in a weird movie, right? Like, it's (laughs) not in a bad way necessarily, but, like... If Jodie Foster was an Oscar winner for Nell, we would look back on that and just be like, "What a time to be alive!" You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> and she just she invents her own language. She lives in the she's lives in the a woods. and a ween exactly. And then the fifth nominee that year was Winona Ryder for Little Women, which is a nomination that I love. It was sort of a I year after she didn't win for uh, Age of Innocence. She lost to Anna Paquin the year before, and I think that kind of opened this sort of narrow window for Winona Ryder, uh, Oscar-nominated actress, which I think is kind of fun, and she's wonderful in that uh, in that little Women. Um, but you mentioned Meg was nominated for SAG that year, the first ever SAG Awards. Also nominated at SAG was Meryl Streep for The River Wild. She was actually Globe and SAG nominated, the very first mm-hmm. – uh, globe sag nominee to not get uh, an Oscar nomination which I think is an interesting (laughs) little bit of trivia you know how much I love the River Wild and you know how much I love Meryl in the River Wild that's another one where it's like talk about going against what you're screen persona is or what like we've all sort of accepted your screen persona where it's like every the more the more discussed one is Meryl doesn't do or can't do quote-unquote can't do comedy which was the thing at this moment but like Meryl the action star was like kind of unheard of and fucking amazing she's so really really good uh I miss Curtis Hanson so much uh director of that movie. also, Globe nominated that year, though, were Jennifer Jason Lee and Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle. She had also won a few Critics Awards, if I'm not mistaken, for that. This was. Uh, yes, uh, at least the National Society. She was Indie Spirit nominated. This was definitely in the thick of who does Jennifer Jason Lee have to kill to get an Oscar nomination era. This mm-hmm. was the year before Georgia. She had previously been buzzed for like Miami Blues and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And she doesn't end up getting nominated until 2015 for fucking Hateful Eight, which I find my brain leaks out of my head when I start thinking about that. I know, I
0: know, I know, I know.
1: Jamie Lee Curtis won the Globe Comedy Award that year for True Lies, and I remember there being like a good little bit of buzz. Maybe not like a groundswell. There was a lot
0: of confusion that year um, for category placement for her, and maybe the... the, Campaign like Switch Tactics, or they didn't promote it all that well, but she won the musical comedy SAG Leading Actress Globe. Um did I just say SAG? Um, but she won she won the Globe for Leading Actress Musical Comedy. SAG nominates her as
1: a supporting performance. Yeah. She doesn't get an Oscar nomination. And then also the big sort of eligibility story that year, like totally ahead of its time, was Linda Fiorentino. In the last seduction, she gets a Bafta nomination. But in the states, they're like this premiered on H. Was it HBO or Showtime? One of the two.
0: Um, uh, it was one of them, but it became a whole like eligibility thing, and she kind of became the critic darling of that year.
1: Linda Fiorentino, the original Small Axe. Um, uh, yeah, the there was a lot of groundswell behind her performance in that movie, and it was ultimately deemed ineligible for film awards in the States. So there's that whole factor. But I wrote down a whole bunch of like other sort of would-be contenders that year. Because I do think you mentioned like there are no weak Best Actress uh, years, only sometimes puzzling uh, Oscar lineups. Um, we were pretty firm on our uh, Natural Born Killers episode that like our choice would probably be Juliette Lewis. She's fantastic in that movie uh, totally worthy of a nomination certain other things I think there is stuff that comes from movies that ultimately uh, kind of flop I'm thinking Meryl herself in The House of the Spirits which we should definitely consider doing an episode on at some point because like what a star studded uh, very prestige forward kind of a movie that didn't uh, make it michelle pfeiffer in wolf that year which is like genre weird but it's still a mike nichols movie like um but that doesn't hit at all julia roberts and obviously i love trouble is a disaster um but that was another one where i think the director of that has charles shire oh right it's charles shire and nancy Myers. so Mm -hmm. yes um there's some awards pedigree there there are uh, some that are from kind of genres that like were never going to happen it was never going to happen for judy davis and the ref even though she's fucking phenomenal in that movie one of my favorite sort of uh, underground christmas movies that aren't warm and fuzzy so they don't get remembered very much as a uh, happy christmas movies but she's she rocks in that kathleen turner and serial mom in, is that year oh yep talk about a globe snub um heavenly creatures is that year which gets a screenplay nomination but like mm-hmm. it, melanie linsky and kate Ooh. winslet are too young and too unknown at this point to be like actual yeah, serious melanie awards Linsky's contenders
0: probably my winner that year they're
1: both was that 94 as far that as 95 as far as movie awards were concerned i'm pretty sure uh, gotcha now i might have to go look that up but i'm pretty sure that that was the it case. could
0: be like 94 in australia 95 and hold on give me
1: a pause and let me look that up 1994 academy awards Uh, nope 1994 uh original screenplay nominee uh for uh yes peter jackson and fran walsh okay um Also that year was Crooklyn, which I think Alfre Woodard is A++ in, absolutely uh, would have wanted to nominate her that year. And the one that I uh, have written down on my own little like rudimentary 1994 ballot uh, that I haven't seen since that year, but I remember being one of those movies that like, this is a movie for grownups and I'm watching it and I get it, (laughs) even though I didn't, was Sigourney Weaver in Death and the Maiden, the... uh, yeah. the Roman Polanski movie Death and the Maiden that is about a uh, a, uh, she's like a South American she would she had been in like a South American prison right and had been like yes. uh, brutalized and, she'd and raped she'd been tortured or whatever,
0: and uh, sexually assaulted by Ben Kingsley the... and
1: she finds him later and mm-hmm. and uh, turns the tables on him and whatever and it's the sort of like
0: it's originally a play right. I think
1: Glenn Close originated the role oh that's fascinating on stage.
0: Maybe I'm wrong.
1: There's a lot about. I would like to revisit it. Actually, I'm sure I won't like it as much. But I remember back then. Again, I'm 14 years old, and I'm watching this like rape revenge, uh, prison camp uh, movie with Sigourney Weaver and Ben Kingsley. And I remember being like, "Oh, this is so good!" And like, I am so mature for being able to appreciate this. But it's basically three people talking. For right. The whole it's movie. very much a staged play. But like Sigourney Weaver is uh, uh, powerhouse in it. So, like, it's a really interesting year for lead actress performances, even in a landscape that is very much 1990s, uh not enough good roles for women, uh, you know, during that era. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a. Which bu- is
0: why I am, I mean, I guess it's snobbishness, but like, at this point, Susan Sarandon hadn't won. It's like this would have been her fourth or fifth nomination. What was Dead Man Walking? She won on her fifth or sixth? It had so
1: Atlantic City, Thelma and Louise, Lorenzo Zoyle, Client is the fourth, Dead Man Walking is the fifth. And then she hasn't mm, nominated. Why did I think there was another one? Anyway, like I'm
0: surprised, especially because that was a movie that was a hit. I'm surprised that more consensus didn't build around her. And maybe because she didn't get the Globe nomination, like, that could have, like, killed some of the momentum for that. The genre but, bias
1: was so heavy that year. I remember uh, yeah. Siskel and Ebert made such a huge stink about that nomination and about it being, you know, uh, you know, like, trash movie kind of popcorn movie throwaway nomination or whatever. And I just don't ever remember... And again, I'm still a young teenager at this point, so I don't, my memories are probably not super reliable. But I just don't ever remember that even being taken very seriously, even when it was nominated, which is too bad. But I think it was then became part of the groundswell the next year where it's just like, okay, really, this has got to happen for Susan Sarandon. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just sort of a bummer that the 94, not only that the 94 Oscars went to Jessica Lange in Blue Sky, which I agree with you that is not a good performance in a very forgettable movie, but that like everything went to Jessica Lange that year. Like it was so, like it was just never a question that she was going to win that award. In hindsight,
0: it would have made so much sense to just have seen Meg Ryan nominated along this lineup like, I love the Winona Ryder performance and I think that that probably, you know, Oscar comes last and like, she didn't show up anywhere except for Oscar um, and,
1: like, that's probably, in relation to that movie, becoming a hit. Yeah. Um. Actually, I'm a liar when I was talking about The Client, because Susan Sarandon won BAFTA for The Client. Yeah. Is that not yeah, insane? Um, I thought I'd mentioned that earlier. Oh, but sorry. Like, I might have, uh, I might have missed you no, saying that. No, no,
0: I mean, like, that's kind of a weird thing. But the thing about BAFTA in the early 90s, like, it, that's kind of before it, you know, got wrapped up in the actual Oscar race. Like it feels like, you know, you would see a lot of things until maybe around the early 2000s where release dates don't line up. Their categories don't overlap. Right. Like even in the same year that Susan Sarandon wins Uh, like Uma Thurman's nominated for a lead in Pulp Fiction.
1: Four Weddings and a Funeral kind of sweeps that year where Hugh Grant and Kristen Scott Thomas both win and it wins film and director but like that to me is much like that makes much more sense to me as like oh yeah BAFTA's gonna go for the more British thing. A lot of the times when you see BAFTA go off consensus they go towards more Britishy y things. And, like, Susan mm-hmm. Sarandon and the client could not be more American. It's just, like, it's so, right. that's so funny to me that that would be. But, again, I think it was part of that whole uh, big Sarandon narrative of the early 90s where it's just, like, when's she going to win? It was very, you know, Leo in uh, the, the mid-teens, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God, they really did. They nominated so many people from Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh, my God. yeah kristen scott thomas wins uh john hannah and simon callow are nominated for supporting actor charlotte coleman is also nominated for supporting actress as i said hugh grant wins best actor it's it's a bonanza they nominated each of the four weddings and (laughs) the funeral right they created the category of best wedding and then they nominated best event those four weddings and then um i don't know what else would have been a wedding from a movie that year I can't think of anything funny. Man, I really fucked up. Muriel's that. wedding's not for another two years. <laughs> uh no, Muriel's wedding I think was one of those where it was ninety-four in Australia and then ninety-five in the States. So they could have fudged it. Oh interesting. It. They could have fudged it. There's probably not a wedding in Quiz Show, which is too bad, because uh there's everything. That movie else needs in that something movie. to be make it interesting. No, I love Quiz Show. Quiz Show rules. You should watch Quiz Show again mm. and agree with me that it rules. Um can we talk for half a second about Lauren Tom, who plays Amy? What were your feelings Spectacular. about Lauren Tom as Amy in this movie? I loved her so much.
0: She is... There's a certain level that you feel like this movie doesn't get class and, like, whiteness. But then, like, when you realize, oh, this movie is actually entirely from the husband's perspective, it makes so much more sense. Yeah. You know, his, like, inability to see beyond what his own, like subconscious needs are makes a lot of sense
1: yeah so so much of this movie feels incredibly 90s to me we talked about the sort of subject matter and that kind of thing i want to get to andy garcia in a little bit because he's incredibly 90s for this movie for me but lauren tom is one of those little like corners of this movie that it's just like oh this could only have like this casting is so 94 for me. We're like, she's in uh, this movie, but also she's in the Joy Luck Club, which is also 1994, uh, which is a big deal. Um, she eventually became like this really prolific voice actress. Like she's got like eight bajillion animation credits for stuff, which is amazing. I also really uh, very vividly remember her from like one episode of the newsroom, uh, the the election night episode where she plays um, this woman from their decision desk who they have to like, there's a whole, it's it's a, a screwball-y kind of a subplot, but she's very good in it. But the thing that I think she's most known for, which is like the most mid-90s of all, is she was the very first uh, romantic obstacle for Ross and Rachel on Friends. She was ah. uh, Julie, who at the end of season one, Ross leaves. Uh, Rachel finds out that Ross is in love with her. Too late to stop him from going on a business excursion for several months to... Uh, uh, china i believe and he comes back and he's got a new girlfriend and it's uh lauren tom as julie and that's like the bulk of early season two is rachel sort of stewing about this and scheming but um i was i was thinking about that while i was watching this movie and i'm like thank god there was no twitter back in 1994 because like lauren tom would have been uh just hounded by psycho fans of friends mm-hmm. who I'm sure she had to put up with it like as like at the coffee shop or whatever, or like those people who are like soap opera villains who talk about like walking down the street and like women hiss at them or whatever, because they hate them so much for being <laughs> their characters. And I imagine like Lauren Tom would have gone through a lot of that on social media. had social media for breaking up Ross existed and for, uh, for keeping Ross and Rachel apart, but she's wonderful in this. She's one of those, like she doesn't really exist in the back half of the movie. She sort of, uh, but like while she's in it, she's kind of really important to the plot of the movie.
0: Mm-hmm. And like, she's a very satisfying character because she's the only one who really gets to dress him down mm-hmm. um, in the way that like we in the audience feel he deserves. Yes.
1: Yes. He's not a bastard, but like he behaves poorly, especially towards her in this. Her, mm-hmm. her role is ill-defined enough where it's just like, is she's halfway between a babysitter and a, a maid where like she's doing you know the cooking and the cleaning and uh she's there sometimes when Meg Ryan is home but sometimes she's just you know she's only there to take care of the children and she's also a college student she mentions and uh you get you she's pregnant at one point i she thought. mentions having to go to a Lamaze class and yet i don't ever remember them alluding to a pregnancy or like showing her being pregnant. So I'm not quite sure what that mention is exactly, but you get the sense that like she has a very full life and there's this one really satisfying moment where he's, he's a pilot. So of course his job is very important. He's a pilot or whatever, as if people need to be flying places, which we don't ever. Um, (laughs)
0: uh that's i wanted to know how that since you bring it up since he's a pilot meg ryan is a teacher in this movie how do they have this full like giant house in san francisco yeah even in the 90s yeah we know what pilots make we know what teachers make. they live
1: in the real world house from real world san francisco which is just my imagination of all townhouses in san francisco are all the real world house uh prove me wrong um mrs doubtfire but so he's uh Meg's in rehab, and uh, he's on the phone with something with his job, and his job keeps trying to downsize him as the other thing. Um, 1994, we're in Newt Gingrich's America, so, you know... People are getting downsized left and right. Um, And he's very stressed and the girls are being very loud and she's trying to cook dinner and he's just being incredibly like mean to her and she didn't go buy paper towels. So now they're out of paper towels and um, or wait, that's the scene where she leaves, but there's an, I think there's an earlier scene Where he's trying to get her to stick around longer. Because, right, because Meg hasn't come home from work. She she went drinking after work and now she's not home. And he's got to go someplace and he's like, this is very important. This is my, you know, it's for my job. It's very important. And she just sort of looks at him and she's like, the implication that my life is not important. And that like shuts him up for a second. And you're just like, fuck yeah, like other people's lives have value. Just because she doesn't have children or a pilot's job doesn't mean she's not important. And I was so like cheering her on at that point. She's wonderful. I agree. She's great. As I mentioned, Latanya Richardson Jackson. Uh, two scenes in this movie, and it's just like, oh, there may be, you know, two of the best scenes in the whole movie. She's a nurse. Best
0: scenes, like I mean, like I think that the it's interesting that a movie it's a movie that is surprisingly about a husband of an addict realizing what he does to contribute to the situation, but like most of the interesting stuff. In this movie, is like the fringe stuff about the actual addiction. The like, daughters, her two scenes—they're all great. Yeah, the scenes of with Philip Seymour Hoffman are great. How she develops this relationship with this guy who is like obviously younger than her. Yes. in rehab, but like they can communicate and understand each other's language. Right, and Andy Garcia doesn't understand that whatsoever. What
1: I love about that is. They don't cast Philip Seymour Hoffman to be a romantic rival at all. There's no uh, canonical hint of that at all, at all. It is a purely platonic, uh, you know, friends in recovery thing. And yet Andy Garcia's character only interprets their interactions through the lens of, I have a rival now. I have a rival for Mm -hmm. her... Uh, her emotional sort of state at this point. And I think that's a really smart thing for the movie to do, where it's just like, it really, you know, plays up the fact that just like, like, are you insane? That that's the lens that you're going to interpret, like, what is clearly this, like, very necessary, you know, uh, conversational relationship that she has with this guy. I do think it's a, it's a weakness of the movie that it doesn't follow her at rehab more. Because I think it takes away some of her standing when she and Andy Garcia end up arguing in the back half of the movie. Because, like, you want, like, clearly a lot of those arguments are about how she's getting from her, you know, recovery group and her AA meetings and whatever something that she really needs to be able to deal with this. And he can't understand that. And he can't accept that someone is helping her that's not him. And I, well, I feel like it, we need to see more of that. It runs
0: the risk of somebody in the audience who can only see his point yes. of view, yes, not ever having the experience of hers to maybe, you know. Uh, Get the the movie's actual message. Like it, it could be really misinterpreted by someone in the audience because we never see a real scene of her. there's a scene I think of her at a meeting, but not really with interaction. You know, where she gets to, where we get to see this like connection that she describes.
1: Right, with the exception of her two scenes with Latanya Richardson Jackson, who plays a nurse at this facility. Um, the only time we see her really in her element at the recovery place is when her husband and her daughters come to visit her like that weekend or whatever, that day that they come to visit her. So it's still through the lens of him observing her in her element at this. And there's always that sort of like additional lens of, oh, this is alienating to him in a way that he doesn't want it to be. One of the strengths of the movie. He wants to be the hero. He wants to be the hero, but I think he also genuinely wants to help her. Like he wants to contribute to her getting better. And I like, Mm -hmm. I think there is something, you know, relatable about that. And I think that is a strength of the movie and that like, that seems like a natural perspective for him. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do feel like if the movie had just given us a couple more scenes of her on her own without the filter of him sort of, you know, observing her. I think it's a little bit stronger of a movie. Yeah.
0: No, I I completely agree. I want to talk about... I will say... sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, go ahead. (laughs) I was
0: going to say, if we're going to talk about Andy Garcia, we should uh, maybe mention he's uh, incredibly hot in this movie.
1: Oh, I mean, Andy Garcia is, like, forever hot. The thing I love about Andy Garcia is just, like... It's, again this very 90s thing of he's a uh he was born in uh, cuba this you know cuban-american actor and yet like in this very 90s way like he he managed to play all uh actors of swarthy descent (laughs) from any kind all sort of like characters of swarthy descent from the 90s where it's just like he was you know he's italian and the godfather he can be uh, Cuban American, he can be you know uh, Latino of, of many straight. He can be Greek. Can, I was going to say Mia, he can be Greek. Again. He can be you know he can uh, you know, sweep Cher off her feet in uh, modern uh, parlance. Yes, um, he's
0: never been sexier than when he is in Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Oh, like, the man.
1: modern day uh, Andy Garcia Renaissance of the last few years has been just truly wonderful to see. But all of his book club scarves. Yes, exactly, exactly. But, so, like, I was going through his filmography, too, and I'm just like, if we were to make a a short list, like, a top five of, like, the most 90s male actors, I think Andy Garcia belongs on that list. Not because he stopped being in movies after the 90s, but, like, just the types of movies he made in the 90s. Okay, so godfather part three is 1990 that's his only oscar nomination he's like the one part of that movie that everybody agreed was good like that movie got a lot of blowback for a lot of different reasons Mm -hmm. we've talked about sofia coppola um getting killed at the end of that movie and how funny it is um he gets the oscar nomination for that he doesn't win but it's just like andy garcia on the map he had been in stuff he had been in the untouchables and whatnot but that was a big sort of uh peak for him he's in Dead Again in 1991, which is not his movie. Like That is definitely uh, Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson's movie in terms of... I still gotta see that movie. it's It's a good movie. He's in a movie called Hero in 1992, which I know you and I both remember. But I was looking at it and i was like even Freers. that had to have had a lot more expectation on it that i remember it's a Stephen frears movie oh absolutely written by david webb peoples who had written blade runner and huge role Unforgiven. for dustin hoffman right and like not a huge role as like a like a weirdo outsider there's like social commentary about the media in it it's uh, Andy Garcia... I'm pretty sure he plays a homeless character. I think you're right. If I'm remembering that movie from my childhood well enough. Right. It's Gina Davis and Dustin Hoffman who had both won Oscars in 1988 and then Andy Garcia who was nominated in 1990. So I feel like, and it was released in the fall, I bet you there was like Oscar expectation on that movie and it didn't... It inspired Mariah Carey to write the film. <laughs> yes. Um... And it just like for whatever reason didn't happen. He's also in 1992 in a movie called Jennifer Eight. Do you remember this at all? I remember it solely as a poster,
0: which is just like his chin and an actress's chin. It's
1: Uma Thurman's chin because she. It's uh. it's his face, um, sort of like a little shadowy. But then it's her, the lower part of her face, and it doesn't show her eyes because her character is blind. Um, but it's one of those uh it's a thriller where he's a detective and he's trying to find a killer and she's blind and she's a possible victim. And, like, there were 8 billion of these kinds of movies in the 90s and they don't make them at all anymore. Like, it's just, even if they make crime thrillers they're not made in this way anymore but there were like eight bajillion jennifer eights in the 1990s um and i think it's like it's emblematic that he's uh definitely in one of them uh when a man loves a woman 1994 1995 things to do in denver when you're dead which is a a movie title that exists without a movie these days we're just like the only yes. thing you remember about things to do in denver when you're dead is that it's a weird movie title um I genuinely, I think maybe Gabrielle Anwar is another actress in that movie, but like that's the only really thing I remember about that movie. Or maybe that's Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, also a movie that only exists as a title <laughs> these days. It's it's Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, are like, those are the movies that only exist as titles. Like those, That's that's the only legacy of them. Um, and then, like, 1995, he's in a movie called Steel Big, Steel Little, which feels like a leftover from the eighties it's he plays identical twins one who's very successful oh. it's like city mouse country mouse it's like what if they made big business but only with two people like only with one set of twins and it's a, a a guy and but it's again he's you know he's on the poster and one of them he's a slick businessman and the other one he's like got a like little pork pie hat or whatever and he's a I don't know, maybe he works on a farm or in an Italian villa or something. I don't even know. Sounds like a 30 Rock joke. Uh, but it's an Andrew Davis movie, written and directed by Andrew Davis, like, right after The Fugitive, it must have been, because this was 95. And and then in 1996, he's in a Sydney Lumet movie called Night Falls on Manhattan,
0: which... Which to me is a movie that exists solely as a poster. Right. It's, like, in sepia tone. Yep, yep. I think... Andy Garcia is, like, hugging his knees he, that's or something 1, like that.
1: That's one million percent. You just described this pr- exactly right. It's sepia-tone mm-hmm. Andy Garcia uh, sort of crouching and kind of, like, holding his limbs together, and there are, like, marble pillars uh, behind him, and it's exactly Andy Garcia, Richard Dreyfuss, Lena Olin, and it's this, uh, again, this is a crime drama, but it's much more of, like, the um, man against the system, sort of noir-adjacent mm-hmm. A Sidney Lumet movie, and and again by 1996 these movies are out of fashion, and 96 is of course like the great Miramax uh, indie revolution, so like this movie never really had a chance. But again, this is another one I bet you would have had some kind of uh, a credible Oscar buzz. I don't think it got released into the states until 1997, though. I think that's how much it was sort of out of its element. And then he's in Hoodlum, that 1997 movie Hoodlum that I was very excited to see, which was. Uh, uh, he and Lawrence Fishburne and uh, uh, Tim Roth is Dutch Schultz, uh, Garcia is Lucky Luciano, and uh, Lawrence Fishburne is this like forgotten black uh, gangster in this film. And
0: I. A movie that exists to me in the universe of late 90s, early 2000s posters where it's like, let's just get all of the stars of the movie to
1: stand in a triangle. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, but again, that movie uh doesn't amount to much. And then by the time he's in Ocean's 11 in 2001, which is only like maybe like 4 or 5 years after this point, it's it's kind of like it's not necessarily a comeback role, but there's definitely an element of just like hey, remember Andy Garcia? When he shows up in yeah, Ocean's 11, well 11? because he gets kind of the glamour role of being the villain. Yeah. Yes. Yeah um it's almost like a kind of thing where they might have cast like paul newman like paul newman in hudsocker proxy right something like that where Mm -hmm. it's just sort of just like remember this guy he used to be such a thing and again he keeps making movies he keeps showing up in things but like the 2000s it becomes much more uh much spottier kind of a thing outside of the oceans movies and he's not really in anything that you really make any note of until Kind of when he shows up in Ghostbusters uh, as the mayor, the, uh, the Kristen Wiig Ghostbusters. <laughs> I was going to say,
0: how, how dare you just overlook the Pink Panther 2.
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, he's also in apparently Let's Be Cops, which uh, would rather not. But um, But I think the Ghostbusters thing sort of then starts ushering in. Remember he's in Passengers for like half a second. I never saw Passengers. He's in Passengers like right at the end. He shows up because Passengers is essentially just the two of them from almost that entire movie. And then at the end, uh, Andy Garcia for no reason. And then he's the president in Geostorm. Did you ever see Geostorm? I should have, but no. I saw Geostorm in 4DX. That's the only reason I saw Geostorm. It's a friend of mine and I were just like, (laughs) let's go see this in 4DX. And... uh, it was a time I got so jostled around it was one of those things where it's just like it started off being fun because the whole thing is you being squirted in the face with water from the seat in front of you in 4DX because there's storms everywhere and then it just became like did you ever go on a wooden roller coaster and just feel like bruised and battered by the end of it more than yes, thrilled it just beats the shit out and of and it's just like that wasn't even like thrilling it was just like ow I just like I hurt and I'm sore that's what 4DX Geostorm felt like to me um, and then, of course, as we mentioned, his landmark 2008, where he's 2018, where he's in book club and Mama Mia, here we go again. And by the way, the mule, which I've never seen, but apparently he's in. And now he's sort of in this like, oh hey, like and featuring Andy Garcia kind of a thing, which good for him. I'm like I think we're we're all better for it.
0: But I think he should just be allowed to be hot and wear ascots in everything now.
1: But do you agree with me that like he is very emblematic of the 90s in a way? Oh, yes,
0: yes. A certain brand of 90s man that doesn't really exist on screen anymore.
1: Yeah. Yes. And like really was like a really solid persona and was just a a leading man in an era of Really great leading men, actually. Like, the 90s, we were not hurting for... That was, you know, strong Tom Cruise era. Hanks, Brad Pitt, Denzel, Harrison Ford. Like, we were rock solid with amazing leading men in the 90s. And he fit right in there in that group. I hate to call
0: performances, like, brave or anything. (laughs) But I do have to, like, commend him for the performance in this movie, too. Because, like he's playing someone who doesn't come off well. And a lot of those other, like, 90s leading men I don't think would have given a performance that is as disinterested in, like, being likable. Yeah,
1: yes. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think you would see that in a lot of his movies, right? Where, like, uh, he really, like, toes that line between what the character needs to be and also who the audience wants to latch on to. Um mm-hmm. I think weirdly like he's that way in The Godfather 3 actually, which like The Godfather 3, he's like he's not a villain in that movie, but he's like he's not the hero. He's definitely like a sort of somewhat malignant influence uh in that movie, but in a really, you know, kind of interesting way. It makes me want to go back and watch some of these 90s movies again. I want to see a hero and sort of see what was up with that again and i want to watch jennifer eight weirdly um and maybe night falls on manhattan who the hell knows but uh yeah interesting little era also the director of this movie is interesting he's directed a lot of movies that i saw that like mm-hmm. he was not like uh, uh louis uh, mandoki not a name you remember and not like an auteur in any kind of like real way but he directed that movie Gabby, A True Story in 1987 that got Norma Alejandro a Oscar nomination, which... Mm-hmm. Or no, was that the one? There was one. She got, like, Critics Awards for one and then an Oscar nomination for another. And... Now I want to look this up for a second. 80s Oscars are really interesting to me because they only exist on paper. I don't have any, like, experiential memory of it. And yet, like, I've, like internalized so much of uh, this Oscar history. She was nominated for an Oscar for Gabby a true Story. she was critics Awards um she got critics awards for as I'm scrolling and vamping um the official story where she got uh-huh. a bunch of uh, uh, which was a foreign language film nominee but she got a bunch of uh, critics awards for that anyway. Um, he directed a movie in 1990 called White Palace. I know we've talked a lot about movies that only exist as posters, but this was very much a VHS going to video factory uh, movie for me, where I would see... It's a sexy movie. It's Sarandon and James Spader. In like, the... Isn't there
0: something to do with, like, ice in that movie? Like, they rub ice on each other or something? Maybe.
1: I've never seen it. The poster... I only know it by, like, legend. The poster is, uh... Sarandon and James Spader in like really like passionate like he's kissing like just above her cleavage and her she's got this like off the shoulder red dress and it's like it's like sexy sex thriller. Uh, the 19- poster is fifty percent decolletage. Yes, essentially yes. Um, but it's again, I would sort of walk past that and just be like, oh, forbidden, like whatever. It, that was in the uh, that was in the mental bank with the uh, VHS cover for that movie, Whore. That I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> If you can't say it, just see it. Yes, exactly. Or like um, Lombada, uh, the the Forbidden Dance or whatever. What a wild time, the early 90s. What was the
0: sex VHS covers that I remember that I was like, ooh, I can't watch this. Yeah. Um, but this, uh, this
1: guy also directed Born 90 Yesterday crazy. in 1993, which mm-hmm. was the remake of um, the, I'm going to get her name wrong, Judy Holliday yes. movie that she won an Oscar um, for globe
0: nominee right
1: had to have been classic gotta be a globe nominee that feels like exactly right Or maybe it was a
0: rousey nominee because that's melanie griffith don johnson and they loved hating them that's true um another reason why the razzies are the worst because like how can you hate uh those two when they produced uh dakota johnson
1: that's very true it was not a it it was not a globe nominee the globe nominees for musical comedy in 1993 were like stacked as hell it was angela bassett Uh, wins for what love got to do with it stalker channing for six degrees of separation which comedy is interesting like it's not it's not devoid of laughs but i don't think i don't know if i would go ahead and call six degrees of separation a comedy um Angelica Houston, Adam's Family Values, rad nomination. Would only have been more rad if Joan Cusack had gotten a Supporting Actress nomination that year. Diane Keaton for Manhattan Murder Mystery and our girl Meg Ryan for Sleepless in Seattle. That is a solid, that is a rock solid lineup right there. That's pretty awesome. Um, Mandoki also directed uh, Message in a Bottle in 1999. The... uh, Nicholas Sparks, I'm pretty sure, adaptation with Costner and... Uh,
0: Kevin Klein, Kevin Costner. Robin Wright. No, Kevin Costner, uh, Robin Wright. And
1: again, that was one of those, hey, surprise, it's Paul Newman <laughs> movies, playing uh, Grizzled Dad, I'm pretty sure, is the role that Paul Newman is at. He directed Angel Eyes in 2001. Of course, we all remember the Jennifer Lopez uh, cop thriller. That was sort of the what those Jennifer Eight movies evolved into for a little bit was movies like Angel Eyes, where it was now it's a mm-hmm. female cop, but it's a psychological thriller. A lot of those Ashley Drama. Judd movies yeah. Ashley Judd movies were like that, or um Murder by Numbers with Sandra Bullock was sort of like that. And then his last movie of any note that he directed, at least in uh, of any note in the States, was Trapped, which I only remember as Courtney Love. Oh, Courtney Love and Stuart Townsend Terrorize. No, Courtney Love and... Yeah, it's it's Courtney Love, and it's Charlize Theron right. and Kevin Bacon? Yes, and is, isn't it? Is it Charlize Theron and Stuart Townsend are the ones who are terrorized, or is it Charlize Theron and Kevin Bacon are the ones who are terrorized?
0: I'm pretty sure Charlize is terrorized. She's
1: definitely terrorized, and definitely Courtney Love is one of the ones doing the terrorizing. I'm just not sure what the the male uh uh, lineup of that is
0: but uh it was the sequel to her terrorizing madonna um at
1: the vmas (laughs) right um wait now i'm gonna look this up really quickly because i have uh, a computer and
0: was that the vmas or was that the
1: movie awards madonna and courtney love was the vmas was definitely the vmas um just tell me who gets terrorized yeah, Charlize and, and Stuart Townsend are married and they get terrorized by uh, also married couple, Courtney Love and Kevin Bacon. Dakota Fanning's also in that movie. I should watch this again. I should just watch nothing but like trash movies that we talked about in this podcast today. <laughs> Would have a great time. Um, Yeah, so yeah, there's that little angle. We should mention yes. Uh,
0: this is an MTV Movie Award nomination. Oh, fuck, yeah. For Female Performance and Most
1: Desirable Male. As I have mentioned before... I get why we have evolved past the necessity and the appropriateness of most desirable male and most desirable female awards. And yet, what a time for uh, our culture, what a time for me to grow up uh, with <laughs> within movie culture is when MTV was handing out awards for most desirable male and most desirable female. like.
0: Truly. This most desirable male lineup.
1: (laughs) Please give it to us.
0: It's pretty epic. It is. Okay, so Andy Garcia, When a Man Loves a Woman, hot. Yes. Keanu Reeves in Speed, hot. Canonically hot. And then the trifecta of loose, flowy linen shirts (laughs) from Interview with a Vampire nominees Christian Slater, Tom Cruise, and the winner, Brad Pitt.
1: The fact that. Um, America's youth looked to interview with a vampire and was just like this is what sexy is to me I love that for America I love that for 1994 Gay America vampire I'm very happy with it yay um uh, quasi bisexual um flowy as you said flowy blouse flowy blouses and uh uh Ennui. Like, there's mm-hmm. just like so much of Interview with the Vampire is just Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt sort of lazing around and just being like, why can't I, like, fuck anything? Like, it's just like that's the <laughs> subtext. of so much. And then, like, Antonio Banderas shows up, and like, I've, I was definitely too young to pick up on the fact that Antonio Banderas is like riding hard for that Brad Pitt dick in that movie. And mm-hmm. like, and then I watch Antonio it. Antonio Banderas is like, I'm surprised he isn't
0: nominated in this because he is like sex incarnate. He will fuck the darkness in that movie.
1: He will, uh, yeah. I guarantee you, if there was a desirable male category the following year, he would have been nominated because that was Desperado. I'm pretty sure he was. Like,. American audiences like did not know who he was for. in 94, which is I think probably the only reason why he wouldn't have been nominated. What if Interview of the Vampire was just five nominees in that category? What if they were just like also Antonio Banderas and like Stephen Ray or something? I don't know. Whatever. like Just to throw away fifth. Let Gandy Garcia keep that one. Even though Keanu Reeves in Speed is wildly attractive. That was on TV again and anytime Speed is on TV, I will watch it. Uh, he's so good in that movie. It's Possibly my favorite Keanu. I know everybody has their own preferred weirdo Keanu performance, but like that is mine for sure. Uh, Sandra Bullock in Speed won most desirable female that year. That's a really interesting female performance. That's a really two uh, golden popcorn. She should have been Oscar nominated for that movie. I'll stand by that. I think she's phenomenally good in that. Um, That is one of those star making performances that I'm just like, yes, correct. We were, we were right to make her a star from that movie. Um, but it's an interesting sort of dichotomy of like what we look for and attractive in 1994, and that like it's um, pretty pretty lady Brad Pitt in Interview with the Vampire, and like <laughs> capable tank top uh, uh, Sandra Bullock driving a bus in Speed. I was mm-hmm. just like, God, love it capable tank top and i believe a
0: flannel right like tied around her waist it wasn't a flannel
1: it was a a hoodie because that was the plot point is she has the hoodie and she's got it sort of uh, draped on the the rail behind her but it's got the university of arizona wildcats uh logo on it which is what dennis hopper calls refers to her as on the phone that wildcat behind the wheel and that's how keanu reeves figures out that he can see them that he's got a camera in the bus mm-hmm. i know very much about the plot mechanics of speed i've watched that movie <laughs> one thousand times um yeah the other nominees for desirable female that you're interesting where it's like that's cameron diaz in the mask which is very much like breakthrough sex kitten role where it's just like she is there to dance and uh flirt with jim carrey and that's another one that like star making performance that i look at that and just like yeah that makes sense uh, Halle Berry and the Flintstones, which was amazing. the Halle Berry, uh, again, sex forward, sort of, I'm the sexy secretary, who's going to, like, seduce Fred Flintstone away from poor Elizabeth Perkins as uh, as Wilma. What a funny, what a, the casting of the Flintstones is insane. We don't have time to get into it. The spe- then The other two are the specialist with Sharon Stone, which is just like. There might Sharon Stone was in a movie. There might be a plot in The Specialist. I that's none of my business whether that's true or not. But like Sharon Stone was there to uh, be very, very sexual, and the height of that phenomenon, which is disclosure, Demi Moore for disclosure. If you're not looking at this poster right now, I want you to describe it because I bet you you could. Um, it is
0: Michael Douglas looking over his shoulder like what the fuck, and it's Demi Moore um as a cigarette ad. Breathing into his face. Breathing it like,
1: whispering into his his ear, like, wouldn't you like a Newport? Like, one of those things. Yeah. It's, yes. She's, like, whispering
0: into his mouth, like, Marlboro cigarette. <laughs> but what she's really whispering is... She's whispering into Michael
1: Douglas's eyeball,
0: these have always brought me back.
1: <laughs> yes, it's White Diamonds, the movie. Um, what she's really whispering is sexual harassment, because, like, that's... Disclosure's... <laughs> Funny for 8 billion reasons, but one of them is, it's a movie that was like, again, not unlike When a Man Loves a Woman or Lorenzo's Oil in this way, where it's just like, here is the issue that we are going to be discussing today, and that issue is sexual harassment in the workplace. It is a very hot-button issue, but we are going to discuss it, unlike When a Man Loves a Woman and Lorenzo's Oil, which did so with um, sober responsibility, this movie is like, we are going to discuss it through the prism of virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't understand why it decided it needed that. And also, that's a Barry Levinson movie written by Barry Levinson Paul Atanasio. His Oscar win is not real. Barry Levinson directed Paul Atanasio wrote the screenplay from a Michael Crichton novel. I don't understand anything about what went into Disclosure. This is the movie that made me want to do a podcast about the films of Demi Moore that I'm still reserving the right to do if I ever get to live the life uh, of leisure and just only make podcasts for the rest of my life, Um, I could do 12 hours on Disclosure. It's so incredibly fascinating. Well, book me for four of those hours. Okay, will do. (laughs) Anyway, what else? What else about When a Man Loves a Woman as we are rounding uh, into the 90-minute mark of this podcast? I have a lot of notes, weirdly. I really thought that
0: it would be one of the movies that we cover that I'm struggling with anything to say about the movie itself. And it really wasn't. So, like, it was in that way. Well, I don't think it's a great movie. Right. um, I think it's watchable. And uh,
1: it was a lot more watchable. I... I don't know if i went into this movie expecting it to be bad but i was just like two hours and five minutes of alcoholism just seems like a real slog it is too long but like but i don't i was never crawling out of my skin watching this movie and i think a big credit of that is to uh the acting in this movie which i think is very good um i wrote down we i said briefly michael bolton had a hit in 1991 with a cover of percy sledges when a man loves a woman and i do feel like if that hadn't happened this movie would have been called something else Because, like, that's just like, it's just, there's no reason to call this movie When a Man Loves a Woman, except for the name recognition of a familiar song title. We gotta remember this. I mean, if
0: you want to unpack some of those lyrics, I suppose you could say the lyrics are not, like, it is kind of, not meta, but, like, a take on it, like, that... The lyrics are not anything about, like, seeing the woman for who she is. Right, You know, right. Like, man as savior.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. But at one point in this movie, I wrote down, there are moments in this where Meg Ryan looks so much like Kristen Stewart. And I do stand by that. Like, I never noticed it before. But, like, there is a facial similarity between the two. That, like, they they were in, was Kristen Stewart in- In the land of women? Okay, were they mother and daughter in that movie? Never saw it. Neither did I. Now I'm gonna look that one up really quickly. I'm really giving Wikipedia a workout. This is <laughs> Wikipedia is gonna be like, "Are you sure you want to look up in the land of women?" Because nobody has ever made that search before. You're working
0: Wikipedia. It's Wikipedia saying to you, "It's yours if you
1: flip it and you search it or something." Oh my God, yes. Um, going to hell. Give me a second. Yes, they play mother and daughter. That is perfect casting. We never gave that Beautiful. movie enough credit for being perfectly cast. As uh, Meg Ryan and Kristen Stewart as mother and daughter. Very good. Um, Should we move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, let me make sure that there's nothing else. I, uh... Oh, here's one just little, not to be all cinema sins about it, but like there's a part in this movie where she's already at rehab and he finds a bottle of vodka hidden in her sweater drawer or whatever, which like she was hiding bo- bottles of vodka all over the place. And that then leads him to like, go find all the other bottles of vodka in the apartment and dump them out. But, like, the first things he goes to is, like, their liquor cabinet and takes all the bottles. And it's like, bitch, you haven't done that yet? Your wife has been in rehab for (laughs) weeks and you haven't, like, cleared out your liquor cabinet? You fucking psychopath. I mean,
0: it's less surprising considering he, like... I would think that he would be like, yeah, well, we can still keep this in the house and
1: it'll be fine. She's already gone to rehab;
0: it's solved, and then I will solve everything
1: else. I'll give that. There was a legit, uh, said straight facedly, uh, save it for group in this movie, which I've like that that has become such a punchline. (laughs) At this point, it would just, like, save it for group, man. But, like, it was said with uh, complete sincerity in this, which I loved. Oh, one last thing. I looked up – I couldn't find a legit trailer for this on YouTube, which sucks. But I found a TV spot. And one of the – it was a TV spot with, like, uh, blurbs from critics, right? And one of them – and the the quality of the video wasn't good enough that I was able to pick out what the credit on this blurb was. But this was back when – Movie reviews could actually say things like an unforgettable celebration of the human spirit. Like even <laughs> even the most Pete Hammondy, like uh Peter Travers Peter Traversy celebrations of, of movies these days. Nick LeSalle. Don't use phrases like an unforgettable celebration of the human spirit, but like they did back then. Like that was the thing that we said about movies back then, and it was glorious. And I don't know if I yeah, would call but this. In movie like that.
0: fifteen years it's gonna be equally as embarrassing when the poll quotes are like this movie fucking stabbed me (laughs)
1: right right this this movie fucked my brain this movie stepped on my neck for two and a half hours like yeah exactly (laughs) exactly all right we say our own version of dumb
0: shit now yeah
1: all right that's my that's my piece on when a man loves a woman
0: all right um this piece um explain the imdb
1: game to our listeners Oh, hey, why don't I do that? Why don't I... uh... In case any of them are new. Exactly. Every week, uh, new people, we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Yeah. That's the IMDb
0: game. Sure is. How are we doing this? Who's who's a going? Who's a guessing?
1: What's the... I'll make you guess first. Why don't I do that? Why don't I make you guess first? Okay, so earlier when we were talking about the uh, roundup of worthy best actress contenders in 1994, I mentioned uh, my odd little experience watching Death and the Maiden starring one Sigourney Weaver. We've never done Sigourney Weaver for an I. Wow. Game, as far as I could find on our records. Not even for Meyerowitz. <clears throat> no. Not even for Hi, I'm Sigourney Weaver in, my, mm-hmm. in the Meyerowitz stories. Um, so I'm going to challenge you, sir, to do Sigourney Weaver is known for. Okay. Alien. Um, Alien. Alien. 1979's Alien. Correct. Cool. Um, Avatar. Avada. Avada. Yes. Um... Ghostbusters. Incorrect, and surprisingly Ah. so. I would have guessed Ghostbusters.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Do I think the Ice Storm is on there? She definitely got acting awards for the Ice Storm, which I think in, like, the the algorithm on IMDB does help but there's also her actual Oscar nominations like Working Girl um, and Gorillas in the Mist Gorillas in the Mist is not going to be on there Um, so I think it's going to be one of them is going to be Working Girl one of them is going to be The Ice Storm or it's going to be one or the other what am I going to guess I'm going to say Working Girl
1: Incorrect. Not Working Girl. So that is Two Strikes. Your remaining years are 1997 and 1999.
0: Neither of those years are The Ice Storm, because I think The Ice Storm is 96, if I'm correct. It is 1997. Oh, it's the 1997 movie? It's
1: not, but The Ice Storm is 1997.
0: Oh, so it's another movie from 97. It's... Wow, is that the other Alien movie that's on there? Is it Resurrection? Alien Resurrection.
1: I'm as that's surprised as wild. you are. <laughs> wild. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Not aliens. Um, not Alien Cubed, but uh, uh, Alien Resurrection. Yeah.
0: Um. uh ninety nine. I'm gonna guess is Galaxy Quest because it's shown up for other people.
1: Correct. It is Galaxy, Galaxy Quest. Quest. Very good. Fascinating. Yeah odd odd that uh, neither of the two ghostbusters movies are on this odd that it's not working girl you're totally correct i would that none that. of
0: her oscar nominations are on there
1: and even something like i mean like cameo movies t- tend to not show up in this for whatever reason but like the cabin in the woods i f- would feel like would be a big uh imdb movie wally uh a big imdb movie and didn't go those ways
0: yeah odd interesting okay so for you i tried to go with the sag nominees of other people who were nominated in the first sag that didn't get an oscar nomination turns out we've kind of uh drained that well actually um so Mm -hmm. i went with somebody who was nominated at sag and with oscar i gave you mr gary sinise oh dear okay lieutenant dan
1: ice cream (laughs) all all film Oh, yes. No television. No voice. No CSI New York. No uh, original The Stand uh, miniseries. Okay. Forrest Gump. Yes. All right. Apollo 13. Apollo 13. Okay.
0: Ransom? Jesus. Okay, uh, you're getting close to that perfect score. I'm not gonna try to spook you, but yes, <laughs> ransom.
1: Well, now, though, now I've I've reached kind of the uh, maybe the end of my rope for uh, easy Gary Sinise choices. Okay, ransom. Um,
0: which, if Twitter existed in the mid '90s, we would have absolutely memed and made fun of
1: the "Give me back my son" shouting clip. Oh, like we kind of did even without Twitter back then. Like we did our very best to make give me back my son a thing even before we knew how to do it. That is a movie god. If I'm really going to do a trashy movie weekend, which I don't have time for this weekend, but at some point I should. Ransom is definitely super fun junk. Like there Mel Gibson shows up on a local news broadcast with a pile of money in front of him or at least that's how I remember it in my in my memory. Uh, how I remember it in my memory, yeah, very good word choice, Joe. Um, but <laughs> Lily uh, Taylor, like the good kidnapper in that movie, right? Gary Sinise is the cop, the the kidnapper who is also masquerading as a cop, um, and Lily Taylor is his one of his accomplices, the sort of main accomplice, and she has a conscience. She bonds with the kid every once in a while, and I'm pretty sure she ends up getting. Killed in a shootout or something uh, mm-hmm. at some point. Uh, for, you know, the the kind hearted uh, kidnapper is always the first one to go. Anyway, yes, ransom.
0: Wow, Leah Schreiber and Donnie Wahlberg played kidnapper brothers in this movie. Wow. They're like the kidnappers that are meant to get shot early on. Yes,
1: for sure. Yeah. Donnie Delroy Lindo. So I forgot. Delroy Lindo is like the he's the, the Fed. He's the yeah. he's the guy who's like, this is what you got to do. This is what you how you got to behave. You got to keep a level head. Like he's that guy. Rene Del Russo Lindo is also amazing in that movie. That was year. like, that was during the like the peak Rene Russo era, where it was like mm-hmm. in the line of fire, uh, Thomas Crown Affair, Ransom. Uh, God, she was killing it mid nineties. Okay. You have one Gary movie Sinise. left,
0: you have zero wrong guesses. Joe i will be very happy if you get a perfect score. We haven't gotten a perfect score in a long time.
1: I know, I know. I want to make this happen. Okay, so I think because he not only starred in this but directed it, I'm gonna guess of Mice and Men.
0: You did it, buddy. Yeah! You got a perfect score. Yeah. Oh excellent. On Gary Sinise of all people. Very happy. Well about done. That. Thank you. How exciting. What a thrill. What a thrill. I I think that's our episode. If you want more of this Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also check out our Twitter account at had
1: underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. You can also find me on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the exact same way.
0: And I am also on Twitter at ChrisVFile, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts now, including Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please, if we're bad, tell us you can't see it. Turn your back on the world for the good thing you found. Uh, that's Superstar. all for this week, we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz.
1: Bye! Ruby!
0: Fernando? Yamor. Mexico, 1959. Can you hear the drums, Fernando? I remember long ago another starry night like this In the firelight, the You were humming to yourself and softly strumming your guitar I could hear the distant drums and sounds of
1: bugle calls were coming from From afar. afar